Hi, everyone. This is Samuel Fritz. The purpose of this podcast is to empower and inspire so that everyone can achieve beyond the potential they see in themselves. Welcome to the Highly Effective Bandroom. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode nine, and today I'm going to address pitch reading mastery. Stick around to learn how I do it. When I was in beginning band, I learned how to read pitches the same way that most of you probably did, where I learned the mnemonics, like every good boy deserves fudge, or even George Bush drives fast, and face was the method I used for naming the lines and spaces and for treble clef. I, I sort of learned the bass clef mnemonic, but I couldn't really apply it with 100% accuracy since I was a saxophone player. I didn't really need to know about bass clef. And we didn't really talk about in my band class either about ledger lines that I remember, but I do remember too that if I misread something or misread a key signature, then I was I was kind of called out for that. But I don't really remember having lessons about those topics. So it might seem simplistic, even ridiculous to say that in my music department now, we teach pitch reading as an essential skill, one that every kid in grade six through eight should master. But of course we should if we teach a performance music class. But what I want to focus with you today on is how we deliver the skills and the procedures more than anything else. Let me begin by sharing what I believe is involved in really learning to master pitch reading. Number one, students must know what the purpose of the staff is and how to navigate its features. So number two, they have to identify a clef to give the lines and spaces names. So in my uh, school, in grade six through eight, we assess a minimum of two clefs to practice this skill. Using only one clef, and in it being the clef that you read the most, that eliminates the need to know what the clef's purpose is. And it also minimizes the need to use other skills regularly to figure out what the name of the pitch is. Step three, they have to identify what accidentals are. They have to know sharps, naturals, and flats. Number four, they have to read ledger lines above and below the staff. And number five, they have to apply accidentals from a key signature that are in the same visual plane as the key signature and those that are displaced by octaves. There are many instruments, I'm sure you can think of a few, tuba, trumpet, clarinet, for example, who never read music in the same visual plane as the key signature. And I used to really struggle with them understanding how key signatures affect all the notes, not just one where the line occurs, not just one pitch. So this process of learning multiple clefs and applying key signatures in multiple clefs has really helped us uh, identify the keys and identify the, the notes affected by the key in different octaves. And I uh, say to students most days, I said this today in fact, use your skills to figure out the name of that pitch, then refer to your fingering chart for how to play it properly. In fact, we had a discussion just today in class where it's a sixth grade, where some students were arguing about whether or not a pitch was B or B flat. It wasn't in the same visual plane as the key signature, so they were debating it. They were having a heated discussion with one another until finally somebody remembered the rules of the key signature and delivered that statement to his peers. And they both agreed then it was indeed B flat because of the rules of the key signature. And this is wonderful for music making as kids know 
how to name pitches, and they know too many pitches to just go with the standard fingerings that they learn in their method book. It keeps them from going on pitch reading autopilot. Now, our ultimate goal with pitch reading is perfect identification of pitch, not speed. We do ask them to increase their speed as a practice skill, but our goal is perfect. So to do this, we've eliminated the mnemonic devices for the most part, and we rely on using our hand as a built-in staff. So each hand has five fingers to represent the lines, and the spaces between represent the spaces. We have kids remember that in one clef, let's take treble clef for example, they just have to memorize the bottom note or your pinky is E. And then in bass clef, the pinky is G. And that's it. We memorize two things. We don't have all those complicated mnemonics to remember um, how to name the lines and spaces. We just need to know two. Treble clef E, bass clef G. So then let's take for an example, third line. There's a pitch on the third line. So we start with E. We know it's treble clef. We have to refer to that first. So we refer to it. We say it's treble clef. So I use my pinky that starts on E. I'll count up pinky for E, space for F, ring finger for G, space for A. And then I arrive on my middle finger, which is the third line, which is the note B. And now I figured out how to name the lines and spaces without fail. That 100% identification accuracy. You'll see lots of students in my class using their fingers as a quick guide if they get to notes that are pitches that are unfamiliar to them in different, in different clefs. So to assess our students in this way, we give them a pretest of 50 pitches that include both clefs, treble and bass. And if you're an orchestra violist, then you get a treble and uh, alto clef assessment. We use musictheory.net to create and deliver our assessments. And the pretests include pitches up to two ledger lines above and below the staff, as well as sharps, flats, and uh, natural accidentals. Our pretest only includes two keys to begin with, um, just so that we can get some naturals in there. But as we progress, they get more difficult. Following their pretest, we look at their assessment data and group them based on their achievement level. And once they're grouped, they begin to work on one of 12 different individual levels that we've uh, created per grade level. So each week, we take a musictheory.net activity that focuses on the skill level. And their goal is to reach a 90% accuracy. And to do that, we need them to answer all the questions under the time limit. So at the end of the week, they record their personal best. That'd be the number correct, their percentage, and their time. If they earn a 90%, then they move to the next level for their intervention period. So the way our interventions work is it's a four-week rotation. First week is pitch, second week is rhythm, third week is literacy comprehension, and there's a review week where we can catch up what we need to do. So if it's a pitch reading week, we take an assessment during the week. We try to achieve a 90% or higher on our personal, on our current level. And then the next time we take a pitch assessment, which would be in three more weeks, then we move up a level and and continue on. So let's take for an example a student who gets a 60% on their pretest. That's our red zone. Uh, this student begins at skill level intervention number one. So he'll take the level one intervention until he earns a 90% or higher. Now this particular level consists of 25 pitches in his instrument clef uh, with the pitches in the staff, no accidentals, and in three minutes. By the end of the week, his goal would be to improve to 90% answering all 25 questions under three minutes. 
If this goal is not accomplished in this first week, then he just continues to work on it until he does meet it. And once he reaches the mastery level on that level one, then he goes to level two. Now, our goal is that each student reach level two by midterm and level four by the end of the year. That way they kind of can pace their learning. We are delivering true differentiated instruction within that full group set setting. Every single kid is working on their own individually paced level while we're doing it as a full group. This is a great activity to bring your administrator in and show them how we use differentiation in kind of the standard way they view differentiation. And when our department meets during our PLC time, we can discuss our data. We can look at what we're going to do to improve it and how we know whether or not we're improving it through that PLC process. Okay, it's your turn to take action now. First thing you want to do is sit down and decide what skills you want your kids to learn. Do you want them to identify pitches in multiple clefs, in one clef? I've given you some reasons why I think we should use multiple clefs. Check out musictheory.net if you haven't done that. Uh, the possibilities are endless for creating levels for your kids with that program. So decide how you're going to assess them. If it's not musictheory.net, what are you going to use? How are you going to assess them and collect that data? And then try one. Don't try a full-on 50-question assessment. Maybe try just a few questions to make sure the kids understand how it's going to work and you're comfortable with the assessment and the data that you're going to get from it. Finally, I would say don't have a ceiling. You know, we have 12 levels per grade, but the levels are endless. If a kid reaches level 12, which is in our case level 6B, and they master that and there's still weeks of the school year left, then we move them on to other things, even if I have to keep making up levels. So let them soar. You'll be amazed at what they can accomplish. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to learn more about my philosophies and beliefs on teaching and learning, visit my website, thehighlyeffectivebandroom.com, and follow me on Twitter, at Samuel Fritz. Until next time, keep building those light bulb moments one glorious mistake at a time.